Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. ...to 22 this morning, and while you're turning there, I just want to... I want to thank everyone who's active in service in this church, whether it's coming here and worshiping together, our praise team. Thank you, Scott, for leading. Thank you, ushers, for doing what you do. Thank you, uh, audiovisual team. Thank you, Sunday school teachers. Thank you, committee members. Uh, we, we have a beautiful thing going here where we have a family that's active and serving, and I praise God for that. And so in order to praise him, I want to thank you. And um, But this week... Uh, we're going to continue and actually wrap up at least this section in Second Peter chapter 2, where he this whole chapter has really been focused on a, a warning for you and I and the churches in Peter's day uh, against false teachers and their teaching. And uh, with churches in Peter's day, and, and right here, right now, in Dublin, North Carolina, in 2019, uh, we face this dual threat that Satan has. In 1 Peter, it was persecution. In 2 Peter, it's false teaching. They faced it then. Uh, it's been history that the church has always faced this, and we're facing it today. And we're going to continue to face it until uh, Christ returns or until he calls us home. And so uh, God's message to us here in 2 Peter uh, specifically in chapter 2, uh, but in these two epistles, is this. Persevere, church. Persevere, endure uh, in the faith because your victory is in Jesus Christ. So this is the battle for truth that we find ourselves in. This is the third and final part of that message. I can't wait to get into chapter 3, one of my favorite sections, uh, because it talks about Jesus' return. I love his first advent. Uh, but because he did come, he's coming again. Amen. And so we are to look forward to that. And I hope Christmas is a season when you can do that. And as we celebrate communion in a couple of weeks, it's also another great time to uh, move our hearts and direct our minds to the return of Jesus Christ. So today uh, we're going to look at Peter's, Peter's uh, final closing warning regarding the dangers of false teachers and their deviant doctrine. We were provided last week with a very detailed description. A couple weeks ago when we started chapter 2, he said, look, it's, it's really a reality. Uh, in the Old Testament, they had false teachers. The church has always had them. You're going to have them. And then he gave us last week uh, a very detailed description of their lifestyles as proof that their message is not correct. Um, what they are professing to believe is very um, contradictory to how they live. And so you know that their message is empty and powerless and deadly. And now this week, Peter uh, wraps up this section of his letter by focusing on the destruction of false teachers and, and those that follow their deception. That's what makes it so dangerous. It's not just the false teachers who are destroyed, but all those who would follow that. And it's an urgent warning from Peter, and he also summarizes all the truth he has presented to us so far in chapter 1 and 2. Let's read verses 17 to 22. He says, These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest. To whom the mists of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, 
They themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped <clears throat> the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we go into your word this morning, we recognize the beautiful truth and promise that the Holy Spirit is right here in this room, present among us, uh, in a room full of believers, in a congregation that has come together this morning to worship you. We know your spirit is present. And so we plead with you this morning that he would be active in his ministry of illuminating the truth of God's word to us. And then help us to not just hear it, not just know it, but respond to it. I pray that he would prick our hearts where they need to be pricked, that he would move our hearts where they need to be moved into line with your will for our lives. God, we are in a culture um, where we're in a battle daily throughout the day so many times false teaching comes into our ears into our hearts into our eyes into our homes and if we don't pay attention to your warning here if we don't armor up with the weapons that you've provided for us your glory and our good uh, are not going to be victorious but we know that the promise you've given to us is victory in Jesus Christ. So if we will obey, if we will do what you have asked us to do, you will be glorified and we will receive good and uh, Jesus will be magnified. That is our prayer. That's our earnest desire. So help us to learn from this passage how we can live that out in our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's uh, look at the first couple of verses here. And he present, uh, presents <clears throat> initially a futility <clears throat> or a pointlessness that ends in destruction. He gives us a very poignant metaphor. It's not just powerful, but it's powerful in a way that evokes a keen sense of sadness. And he gives us really two metaphors here in verse 17. They're wells without water. Who are these? These are wells without water. Well, these are the false teachers he's been describing throughout chapter 2. These are wells without water. That's the first metaphor. Can you think of anything more pointless? Some of you I know are military veterans, and um, when you were in need of water at times, maybe you were on a field exercise and you didn't have it, and you thought that here's a great location to get it, and you got there and there was none, or the water that was available uh, wasn't worthy of you putting in your body. Uh, not only is that a disappointing thing, it's actually a dangerous thing. could be a deadly thing if you don't have water or if you put water in that's going to make you sick and further dehydrate you. And this is what he's promising them. He says, uh, when these false teachers, it looks so good. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be wonderful, but when you get there, you realize that their promise cannot be fulfilled. Uh, there's no benefit there. And then it leads to not just disappointment, uh, but, but even death. And uh, he goes on with a second 
uh, metaphor, but really just reinforcing that same truth. He says they are like uh, clouds that are carried with a tempest. You're in need of rain. We have farmers in our congregation, and, and so much is dependent on God's providence of rain. And you see clouds rolling, and you're like, good, we're going to get some. But they're these big, heavy clouds that are moved by a fast storm, and they never dump anything. Or even if they do, it's so fast moving, you don't actually get a whole lot of benefit from it. And he says that's what these uh, false teachers are. They, uh, they, they promise so much, but they can never deliver on it. And, and these are the counterfeit promises of Satan. That's what this false teaching is. And at any time Satan comes to you and says, do it this way. I know God says do it this way, but no, this is what is going to make you happy. You have to recognize that that is a false teaching. That's a well without water. It's not going to deliver on the promise. Satan can't. He has a, a perfect, unbreakable track record in history of saying, this will make you happy. It never does. Never once has it ever made happy. Now, it might have for a season. We know God's word teaches us that there's pleasure in sin for a season. But the end is destruction, and the end is, is death. And so uh, it's amazing that you and I still fall to this uh, counterfeit promise. But we, it, it, I think we can have some power and in our, in our battle for truth, if we would recognize that and just say, well, this is a false promise and identify it for what it is. All right, this is the promise of false teaching that's been throughout all of history, when our known history, which starts back here in Genesis. And boy, Genesis 1 to Genesis... Genesis 3 is not a very long time. I don't know chronologically how long it was, but it's only two chapters away that man was created and then man fell. And the counterfeit promises of Satan uh, overtook the, the, the dependable and faithful promises of God. And Satan came to Adam and Eve, and they said this, and we still struggle with this today, and this is what the false teachers are presenting. Uh, that, that snake, the devil, says to Eve, hath God said... Is that really what God said? Causing doubt in our mind and trying to shift our reliance on the promises of God. They have an unbreakable, perfect track record of always coming through. And then he shifts to what he's enticing her and Adam with. And this is the message. God doesn't want what's best for you. That's what Satan told Eve. He's trying to keep something from you. He knows that when you eat this thing he told you not to do, when you do this one thing he told you not to do, you'll be just like him. And he, he wants to keep it from you. This God that created you for his glory and to enjoy him forever, he wants to keep something from you. He doesn't want what's best for you. That message is in Genesis 3. That message is on December 8th, 2019 here. This is what any time sin is presented to us, any time false teaching is presented to us, that is the message. This is going to make you happy. This is what you need right now. And we've got to recognize it for the, the false teaching that it is. And the counterfeit promises that are being offered here. Satan doesn't have a, a, a large skill set. He's kind of a one-trick pony. This is what he does. And he says, God is a killjoy. Is that truth? Not. God is opposed to what kills joy. Please know that. When we went over a couple of weeks ago, our purpose and our mission and our vision, this is our purpose, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. This is the purpose of Dublin First Baptist Church and every person who's part of this beautiful community of faith is to enjoy God by, uh, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And Satan says, God doesn't want what's best for you. Do this. This will make you happy. No, it won't. God's not a killjoy. 
He's, he wants to kill what kills joy. That's what he's asking for us to believe here as uh, we battle false teaching. He describes their futile end uh, here in verse 17. These are the people to whom the mists of darkness are reserved forever. This is a poetic description of hell. This is where people who will continue to live in false teaching and won't turn to Christ, this is where, what is reserved for them. You notice it says, uh, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. It's been months since we started in 1 Peter, but I don't know if you remember way back in uh, 1 Peter 1, 4, it said that this is uh, a grace and the peace that we have in Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance, incorruptible Christian. We have, it's undefiled, it fadeth not away. It's reserved in heaven for you. And, it, and there we studied that that is like a literal reservation with your name written down, just like you call a Georgios and say, hey, I need a table at six or whatever, and they put your name down, they ask the name, and they call you, all right? This is a literal reservation, a place for you, Christian, that's in heaven. And that same, same particular specific reservation is here in hell for those who will not turn to Jesus Christ, for those who will reject uh, God's truth and the gospel that Peter's calling us to focus on and who will instead believe the, this false teaching. Uh, or anything that's false, uh, anything that tries to steal God's glory. It's not, just a, um, it's not just a poignant metaphor. There's a powerless message here. That's really what the metaphor is trying to describe. But in verse 18, he says, When they speak, when they speak great and swelling words of vanity or pointlessness, when they speak these things, you know what, their oratory skills may be amazing. That's not a bad thing. I mean, so many times when we talk about false teachers, that's one of their characteristics. Hopefully, um, that's a characteristic of, of right teaching, too. <laughs> you know, well, are you thankful that the Bible is interesting to read, right? And hopefully you are with uh, preachers that are interesting to hear and that God uses them. So don't think, oh, well, oratory skills are, are bad. That's not the bad thing. The problem is that's where it ends. That's all they have. Their oratory skills might be incredible. It's by these great and swelling or arrogant words that they bait, they lure, they entice. That's the, um, the word there in the King James says they allure. It's a fishing term in the Greek. And so many of you go fishing, right? Mr. Randy goes fishing. And you bait and you lure and you entice. And this is what these false teachers do. This is what Satan does through them. All right. Um, their message is seemingly powerful. And it's designed to catch those who are unaware. In the second half of verse 18, we see the targets of uh, their destructive false teaching. They don't go after people who are very established in the faith. They know that they're probably not going to sway them. They tend to go after naive, unestablished believers, maybe new believers. And when I say new, I don't mean that got saved a week ago or a year ago. You know, you can be saved for 40, 50 years and, and still be a new believer because you've just never uh, been discipled, you've never grown, um, and, and so that's why it's so important to do that, but he says, uh, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much oneness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. The King James says clean escape. Some other versions say uh, barely or short a time. The word can be translated either way, but this is the truth, um, that these are people who are pretty recent converts, at least in their level of spiritual maturity, their recent converts of Christ, and that's who false teachers target. So if that's you, um, be aware of that. And then please don't stay 
a recent or immature believer. Notice how important it is to be established in the faith. It was about a couple weeks ago, back in chapter 1, when we went through here, uh, we were talking about the ladder of faith, and we're on that rung one. If you have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, you turn to Christ and believed in him, trusted in him to uh, die for your sins and pay for your sins and know that you have a home in heaven, you are on rung one of this ladder of faith. And unfortunately, too many believers, that's where they're going to be. They're content to be there the rest of your life. And this is the target of destructive teachers. This is where they, they target these people. They don't target people who have added to their faith virtue and have added to their virtue excellence and then knowledge and then all the way up to uh, love and charity. They don't target those. Those are hard to pick off. It's these ones who are rung one Christians, and they're good with being there. So if you're there, don't stay there, please. Be aware and then move. Do what Peter told us to do in chapter 1. The technique they used to do this, all right, those are the targets. The technique they used to do this is also in verse 18. They allure through the lusts of the flesh uh, through much wantonness or rampant immorality. That was the problem. That was the current false teaching that these churches that Peter was addressing were facing. It was through uh, rampant immorality that they did this, all right? So they're appealing to their lust of the flesh. That's what Satan did to Eve. It says when she saw the fruit, it was pleasing to the eyes. Well, it looks good. I bet it tastes good, all right? It's pleasing to the flesh, and it had the ability to make one wise. I could be just like God. Pride of life, all these different lusts that <laughs> so many sins can be encompassed into. She fell, and this is what they do. Through much wantonness, rampant immorality, they snare, they entice, they bait, they lure in those who were just barely, just clean escape from those who live in error. Now, there's some discussion when you look at commentaries. Is he talking about saved people here? Recently saved people? Or is he talking about unsaved people that might think they're saved? And some people believe, yeah, this is who he's talking about. This is The problem is if we continue, we, we choose one, and we continue through it, we have to use it through the whole rest of the passage, right? We need to interpret the Bible properly. And the, the problem with picking one of them is... Um, it may uh, contradict some other passages of Scripture. We'll look at that in a second. What, what I say is, I don't know. <laughs> and I don't know if anybody can know. Uh, are they saved? Who, who does know if they're saved? God. God knows if, if they're really truly made a, a profession and they're believers. I'll tell you what, we can, we can uh, discern if they are by their fruits. That's what we're told to do. And um, this is what he's saying. Their fruits don't match up with their profession. So are they possessors of Jesus Christ? Maybe. They're definitely professors. They profess to have come to Jesus Christ, but are they possessors? Uh, I'm not so sure. And I don't know that we need to like, decide who is he talking about here other than this, um, and we'll get here in a second. We know that those who are brought to faith in Jesus Christ are kept by faith in Jesus Christ. Once you're his, you're his. All right, amen? <laughs> Once you're his, you're his. We, we need to hit on that because that's a false teaching too. Uh, that he's going to address here in a second. Look, in encouraging these uh, unsta unstable, unestablished, recent converts to uh, the faith to engage in moral, immoral behavior, um, they're promising them liberty. That's what it says in verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they're saying, don't be constrained by the rules. Yes, I know you're a Christian, so am I. Uh, and don't be constrained by rules. It's not all about rules. That's religion. We have relationship. And we do. We have relationship. But we are, uh, we are asked to obey God's commandments because he has saved us. Not in order to earn that salvation, 
But because of his grace, we have the power to do it. Grace doesn't make obeying God uh, uh, undoable. It makes it, it makes it possible. <laughs> All right? You and I can obey the law. And what these teachers were saying is it makes it negligible. You don't have to obey the law. Oh, God saves. You know? In fact, you know what they said? You should sin more so that God's more magnified. The very thing that Paul said, should we sin more that grace may abound? Certainly not, Paul says. And Peter, he's facing the same false teaching here. You know, they use the same deceptive message that the devil used back in Genesis 3, uh, and their message is powerless. They say, follow me. Just live in God's grace. It doesn't matter how you live. This is liberty. He says, you can't give them liberty because you're not even in liberty. This is what Peter says here. They promised them, li them liberty, but they themselves are the servants of corruption. They've never been delivered. They've never known freedom in Christ. So how can they promise you freedom in Christ? You know, and we think, is this a problem in our churches today? Three, I mean, honestly, God, you've given us, I've taken three messages on it, but in all of Second Peter, here's this big chunk of false teaching. There's some epistles that are completely devoted to it, like the epistle of Jude and others. Is false teaching really that big of a problem today? It is. I Praise God, I don't believe it is in Dublin First Baptist Church, these walls, the events we hold here, the meetings we hold here. Will you pray with me that it never, uh, it never is? Please. Beg God, because he said it will come into the church as a whole. Is it a problem in people who profess that they are Christians in churches across this nation, across this world? It's a problem. It's a problem even in our convention, I'm afraid. I mean, it is. There's false teaching that goes on. There's, there's, there's pastors that I, I love. I'm not going to throw them out with the bathwater. But look, I like to listen to them, and then they say, uh, kind of dumb things like we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. It's not important. And then they come back and apologize for saying that dumb thing. So we forgive them, right? But do you see how that could be destructive? That half of God's word's not important to you and I? And we have people who say God's roles and gender don't matter anymore. That was for that time. And we need to interpret uh, God's word through our cultural lens because it doesn't fit with our society. Look, if God's word doesn't fit with our society, God's word is not the problem. Our society is a problem. God's word is not what needs to be changed to fit to our society. Our society needs to change to be fit to the holy, an inerrant, never-changing word of God. Can we have a compass and a standard? Please, let's hold to it. God's provided it. And this is what Peter is pointing us to. He nearly offers a parallel commentary of Paul in Romans 6 when Paul says this. He says, um, whatever demands your devotion... That's your master. If it's sin, that's your master. If it's Jesus, then he's your master. But whatever's demanding your devotion, whatever you can't give up, you just can't give it up, that's what you're in slavery to. That's what you're in subjugation to. Hopefully it's Jesus. I'll gladly be his bond slave as Paul was, as Peter claimed to be. With joy, I'll live in the liberty that that slavery provides. But is it? Is it sin? And Peter's message is the same as Paul's because they both came from God, and they said this, if sin is your master, that's going to lead to death, eternal death, forever away from God. And if Jesus is your master, that's going to lead to eternal life. And Peter, he'll pleads with us not to fall for a message 
from a messenger, that sounds good, but it's powerless. It never delivers. Why would we fall for it? Never once has it come through. Never once. Now look at the culpability that ends in destruction, the guiltiness. Uh, and first of all, before we, we get there in 20a, we're called to escape. That's the demand of the gospel is to escape. Jesus says, come to me, leave that lifestyle, come unto me, right? And I'm going to free you. We are escapers. Back in 2 Peter chapter 1, if you just flip back a page, look at 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. This is what he told us. He said, grace is ours and peace is multiplied through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Verse 2, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. And what has happened to you? You've escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now back here in, uh, in verse 19 and 20 says, they promised them liberty, they can't deliver it. And in verse 20 says, for if, after they have escaped, that's the demand of the gospel is to escape. The default position of every person entering into this world is on its way to hell. And Jesus comes and he says, turn to me by my grace in faith, you turn to me, you escape. You escape not just eternal destruction, but you now have power to live here and now for my glory. You have power to live as a redeemed, born-again person with victory over sin. And we are escapers. That's what Peter just said. Well, how did you and I escape back there in chapter 1? How did it say we escaped? In verse 2 and verse 3, verse 4, through the knowledge of him. Right? You remember this full knowledge we kept emphasizing, a full knowledge of the gospel. In verse 3 it says knowledge. In verse 4 it says exceeding great and precious promises. It's the word of God and specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is how you and I escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now in verse 20 here in chapter 2, he says, If they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they're again entangled. All right, so this is the demand of the gospel. It's to escape. And why did they leave this knowledge then for something else? That's what he's going to describe here. Well, they left it for the same reason that Adam and Eve did and uh, all of their descendants all the way to you and I here in 2019. That's why they were lured away by their lusts. That's why we leave. Uh, they took their eyes off the treasure that is Jesus Christ. That's why you and I sometimes as believers are lured away. They believed they were presented with, and they believed this lie, that um, joy can be found in something or someone else than Jesus. You can't. C.S. Lewis said that. He said, God cannot give you happiness apart from himself. Do you know why? There is no such thing. <laughs> he couldn't even if, if it was possible, because it's not possible. And we've got to see that joy, joy is only found. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that joy is only found in Jesus and in pursuing him. I love what David says in the Psalms. He says, my soul follows hard after thee. It takes some effort, but oh, it's a joyous pursuit. <laughs> it takes some work, but oh, it's a joyous pursuit. It's a blessing. And joy is found only in Jesus Christ. This is our escape from the corruption that is in the world through lust. And here in verse 20, we're reminded that the way that happens is through a knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior, a passionate desire to know him. But notice in verse 20, it starts out with for if. And that's important because we have a hypothetical situation here. 
It's important that we realize that it's a hypothetical situation. Genuine Christians cannot escape and then be permanently entangled in it. They can't. So what he's saying is if, if this were possible for somebody who's genuinely turned to Jesus Christ, they're, they're truly saved, if it were possible for them then to recant and turn away uh, and, and get entangled in the sins of this world again, it would be really, really bad. They can't. The faith that brings us to, uh, the grace that brings us to faith in Christ keeps us uh, in faith in Christ. You know what? We may wander. Do we wander? We do. <laughs> Come thou fount, that hymn that says, I'm prone to it. Are you prone to it sometimes? I'm prone to it. Your pastor is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, so what do I do? I pray, I plead with you. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Please protect me, because I am so prone to wander. I'm a sheep that's prone to wander. Help me stay close to the shepherd. That's Peter's whole point in this warning. And those that are truly his will not finally be lost. So who is he talking about? The saved and the unsaved? I don't know yet. They're not dead. They can still turn back to Christ. I don't know. Peter doesn't tell us exactly that. But here in this hypothetical situation, he says, if it's even possible for them, their last state, all right, their latter end is worse than it would be in the beginning. What we've got here is a situation of false teachers and their followers who've professed to receive Christ and been delivered and have escaped, but they've never possessed Christ. If they don't ever turn, these are people who have never possessed Jesus Christ. That's what Scripture tells us. Did you know that... Um, they have a, a, a more sore punishment. People who have received knowledge of Jesus Christ, and then they've turned and never returned back. This is what Scripture teaches here in Second Peter, and we've got other sections. I, I do want you to turn. I'm not big on flipping around a lot, but I want you to see this. In Hebrews 6, will you turn there with me and keep your finger here, a bulletin back. We'll be right back in Second Peter. But in Hebrews chapter 6, I want to look at verse 4 um, because this reinforces uh, this thought, but it also, this is a passage that people who, um, who are false teachers use to support their false teaching, and I think we need to understand it properly, all right? And so um, Hebrews 6, starting in verse 4, it says, For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, and they've tasted of the heavenly gift, and they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. It's impossible seeing that they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and they put him to open shame. All right, so what God is telling us here in Hebrews is that there are people who profess to know Jesus Christ, but they've never possessed him. Now, I, I highlight this one because um, I have friends. I love them. Uh, they profess to know Jesus Christ, and I cannot judge if they do or they do not have him. But I know that they lean heavily on what they do as a uh, a merit of their salvation because they believe they can lose it by what they do. And they use this passage a lot. They'll say, see what it says? It says you can lose your salvation. I don't see that here. What I see is God telling a group of people, Hebrews, is written to the Hebrews, they had uh, confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, and then their family and friends are saying, you're turning away from your whole culture. You're a Jew. Turn back to Judaism. And they're tempted to do that. And Peter's trying to tell them, if you turn away from Jesus Christ, you're lost. There is no other way. You didn't lose your salvation. You never had it in the first place. This is what Peter's telling them. All right, so for those, if you have somebody who says, no, look, Scripture says you can lose your salvation. 
That is false teaching, church. And this passage, if this passage supports it, this passage proves that you can never get it back. So you're in a real pickle. You see what it says? It is impossible for those who are once enlightened. If they should, if they should uh, taste of the heavenly gift, make, be a partaker of the Holy Ghost, if they shall fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. If this passage teaches you can lose your salvation, it teaches you're done forever. You can't ever gain it back. So we're in a real mess. Now, flip over to Hebrews uh, 10. And we kind of, this is another passage that's in line with this. Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 29. And this uh, is what Peter is about to present to us. But in Hebrews 10, in verses 26 uh, to 29, it says, For if we sin willfully, he's telling us the same thing he did back in Hebrews 6, if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. There's not optional ways. Oprah, I'm sorry. There's not many different ways to Jesus Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life. That's it. Exclusive. And if you sin willfully, after you've received knowledge of that truth and you say, I'm going to go a different way, it's not to heaven. It's not to God because it's not through Jesus Christ. But there's a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law back in the Old Testament, he died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Please notice this word. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall be he thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despot unto the spirit of grace. You're using Jesus as a doormat when you say you've received him and then you turn away from him. Whether it's by legalism that these Hebrews were struggling with or whether it's in uh, Christian liberty, which isn't liberty at all, it's license. Yes, I've received Jesus, but I'm going to live however I want, even if it's in rampant immorality. Either end of the spectrum, same problem. You've turned from Jesus Christ. Here you've added works on the wrong side of the salvation equation. Here you just took them off completely. And let God's gospel be God's gospel. It's not for ours to mess with. He's revealed it to us. Now, back in 2 Peter. So, what is this? The degrees of punishment. The latter end is worse than the beginning. It said in verse 20 of the second part, if they've done this, if they've received Christ, and then they, if it's even possible to do that, which it's not, it's hypothetical, but if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world, then they would turn away from Christ and again are entangled in rampant immorality like he has been describing here in chapter 2, and they're overcome by it. They don't ever turn back to Christ. That's an important word too. If they're overcome by it, they never turn back to Christ. The latter end is worse than the beginning. How could that be possible? Because the writer of Hebrews says there's a sorer punishment for those who have known the gospel and said, nah, there's a sore punishment. Here he says, it's, it's a, there's a latter end is worse than the beginning. Look at 21. For it had been better, it would be better for you to never know the gospel. It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, they have heard it, never truly possessed it, but known it and heard it and professed it and then to turn away from it, he says, uh, it had been better for you to never have known the gospel. There's a greater culpability and there's a greater degree of punishment. This is true. It's true in scripture. Back in Numbers 35, when the Mosaic law was being laid out, if you murdered someone, you would be killed. 
but there was different penalties for manslaughter and murder. That's true in our uh, legal system today, right? We have different penalties for manslaughter and murder, for trespassing and breaking and entering. There's different levels of punishment, different degrees of it. Jesus said the same thing in Luke 12 in his parable of the wicked servant. Uh, the master gave these servants something to do. He went away. One of them with antagonism and a direct rebellion doesn't do what he's supposed to do. In fact, he beats uh, the other servants, and, uh, and, and when the servant comes back, he's beaten with many stripes. And then a servant who didn't do his job, but not of antagonism, just out of ignorance or ambivalence, and because he was lazy, he still gets beaten, but he gets beaten with few stripes. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew, in uh, Matthew chapter 11. This is the most powerful part. It says, Jesus began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. They had seen the gospel in action. They had heard the gospel, and they did not repent. They did not believe. In Matthew eleven twenty to 24, Jesus says, Woe unto you, Chorazin, the city. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Phoenician, pagan, Gentile cities that had no knowledge of God. But if they were done in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And Jesus says, I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in that day of judgment than for you. Do you realize there's a sore punishment? Do you realize that even in hell there's a more tolerable and a less tolerable? Verse 23 says, And now Capernaum, <laughs> you think you're, you have a great big synagogue. You think you're exalted to heaven. Matthew eleven twenty three and thou Capernaum which art exalted unto heaven you shall be brought down to hell for if the mighty works which have been done in of a more evil wicked city in all of history but if they were done in Sodom it would have remained until this day it would not have been destroyed because righteousness would have been there and he says I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in that day of judgment than for thee. There is a greater culpability when you hear the gospel that results in a greater degree of punishment for those who have heard and professed to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally an identity that ends in destruction and that's simply uh, this, this proverb he quotes here in 2 Peter 2 uh, 22, he says, uh, from Proverbs 26, 11, the, the proverb is, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a, a fool returns to his folly. Why do dogs do this? Have you ever seen a dog do this? You don't have to testify, right? It's gross, isn't it? It's really gross. I have a dog, and he's done this before. Um, why do they do it? And, uh, you know, Peter's whole point in this final verse and these final two metaphors is that their wicked lifestyle proves that they're not uh, a possessor of Jesus Christ. It proves they've never escaped. It proves that uh, they're living in what they've supposedly been delivered from. But uh, their continual practice of depravity, it contradicts their confessed profession of deliverance. In this first metaphor, you know, when puppies are being weaned, sometimes the mom will do a baby bird thing. Like as they're going on to solid food, she'll chew it up and she feeds it. That's gross, too. But it doesn't say this. It says he returns to his vomit, not mom's, his vomit. Why do dogs do that? Have you ever seen a dog, when he does vomit, he tries to go hide? He doesn't want you to know he's sick. And then he might eat it or bury it because he doesn't want you to know he's sick. And this, I really believe that God's given us a clue here. False teachers do not want to be exposed. But you know who's exposing them for us this morning and for the last three Sundays? God's given us his word. And he just says, this is who they are. Find them. They try to hide. 
Now, God's graciously exposing their deadly message for us so that we won't fall to it. Their identity is captive. They can't help but wallow like a pig. You ever seen that? You clean a pig up, maybe show it the fair or something, and boom, right back in the mud before you can do anything. Because it's a pig, right? It's what pigs do. Can't change a pig like that. It's just what they do. False teachers and their deceptions are really confusing to the church. They are. They're debilitating to the church. It's depressing. That's why John says in 1 John 2, he says, look, they went out from us because they were never actually of us. Um, If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that it might be manifest that they were not all of us. And he wants to encourage us, as Peter does, this is a reality, and when it happens, don't be depressed. Pray about it. Be concerned about it. Love them back to Jesus if they're not dead yet. Jesus. And then we're told in 1 John 2.20, but look, church, don't get hopeless because you have an unction. You have access to the Holy One. And you know all things. Isn't that what Peter told us back in, back in chapter 1? You've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. You can identify false teaching. Don't be worried about it. But when you identify, what are you going to do with it? That's where you and I fall so much, I think. We go, eh, is it really that bad? And we let half God said, and half God said, and half God said keep ringing. And it rings in our ears, and it rings in our kids' ears, and our grandkids' ears. And pretty soon it snuck in. It's smuggled in. That's what we're told. It's smuggled in. Peter's message to us in chapter 2 is to beware of their motivation, their methods, their message. Church, beware of it. Don't let it come in to Dublin. But you know what? It will never happen. It will never come in here into church if it never comes into church. Do you know what I mean by that? It will never come into this church if it never comes into me and to you. That's how it gets into this church. And so we are to watch. We've got to do that. We've got to do what Peter said in chapter 1. We've got to focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said three times he gives us this reminder, turn to the gospel. I'm going to die soon. Turn to the gospel. Focus on the gospel. That's how you identify false teaching. And he says, devote yourself to tr- truth. So as Scott's going to come this morning, we're going to sing softly and tenderly a song of invitation. But look, I'm going to ask you, are you going to plead? Can you plead this morning and say, God, give me a passionate thirst for your word. Give me a, a devout hunger to live daily with a desire for your word. It's your word that is life transforming. It's your word that is deceit destroying. It can't stand. Because we have victory in Jesus. We've got a choice before us this morning. Devotion to God's word that results in eternal life or a destruction that comes from false teaching. Church, we're in a battle for truth. And Peter is calling us to fight. Will you fight this morning?